So we're starting a new series this morning, Adventures in Generosity, where we'll be examining figures in the Bible who chose to dove in and ride the wave of divine generosity. We're going to start in Genesis, we're going to end in, in Acts. It's going to be a continuation of our last series, and we're going to do it right up to Easter. Uh, myself, uh, Pastor Brett, the elders, community group leaders, got, got a lot of encouraging feedback with regard to how God has compelled many of us to expand our thinking and our praying in terms of generosity with one's entire life, not just giving and tithing to one's church, per se. Giving, being generous with our entire life, hands wide open, both to God's generosity and then giving outwards to others. However, you might also be thinking, okay, Ryan, that was good. I I benefited from that, but... Four weeks was enough, right? You're pushing your luck here. There's two reasons why I wanted to push forward a little bit with this theme of generosity. One is very personal in that through his word and aided by the instruction and example of others' generosity, I'm beginning to view all of life through that lens, the lens of generosity, the lens of gift, both God's and then ours. The gospel, we love the gospel. It's a rich term. Firstly, has to do with This amazing message of God's giving Himself to us. Belief in which can rescue a person from death to life. And can help grow those of even the most seasoned Christians into more abundant life. That is the power of this amazing Gospel. But the Gospel is like a precious jewel. And like the most precious jewels... It has many facets, like a prism, through which we can see a different shade of its beauty, and specifically the beauty of Jesus. And that's true of the Gospel. It's like a multifaceted prism. It reflects a different shade of Jesus' great beauty, depending on which side you look at. So, redemption, reconciliation, justification, sacrifice, and on and on are ways in which we appreciate Jesus through the message of the gospel. And it's fair to say that one side of that prism, one side of this precious jewel, is generosity. Whose theme verse might be what my friend Gordon read earlier from Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? So he's given us supremely Jesus through which we have life, won't He also give us all things and be exceedingly generous? That is generosity. So I wanted to give you not only sort of didactic teaching and principles that we looked at last month through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, but also vivid examples, adventures of generosity from the Bible that we can grow from and learn from and mine from to sort of mine the lives of those who, some of whom look forward to Jesus, some of whom anticipated Jesus, some of whom even knew Jesus, and they show that through a generous life. So that's what we're going to be looking at here in March. Some of these kinds of lives from Genesis all the way through the book of Acts. A second reason we're looking at generosity a little further, might because generosity might be the most important side of the gospel for Grand Cayman. The most important facet of the gospel for Grand Cayman. Here's what I mean. Jesus and later Paul, the Apostle Paul, warned against all kinds of covetousness and greed. 
These are the sins of wanting what you don't have and wanting more of what you do. They don't say, hey, beware of adultery, right? Because if you were to commit adultery, it would be pretty obvious, right? There's the other person. They're not my wife. Adultery. We may not want to admit it, but there it is. It's obvious. Greed and covetousness are non-obvious. They're harder to detect. In 13 years of pastoral ministry, I've heard people say, Ryan, I struggle with jealousy, vanity, lust, pride. But no one has ever said to me, Ryan, I just find myself often wanting more. I just spend way too much on myself. Right? It's a problem. Or equally, I save way too much money. People don't come and vulnerably share that. I've never heard someone come out and share that. It's non-obvious, covetousness and greed. And so we need to more frequently address that covetousness and greed with the gospel, with the generosity of God through Jesus Christ. Money is not an idol. By the way, an idol is something you put in the place of God. It's taking a good thing and making it into an ultimate thing where God should be in our lives. But money is not an idol but it is probably the all-time best servant of idols. Here's what I mean. For some of us, an idol might be to receive praise and honor. That's what fuels us, for people to compliment us with words and say nice things about us. Money is a great servant to that idol, right? If you have a lot of things, believe me, people are going to say a lot of nice things about you. They're going to come to you. They're going to be your friend. They're going to say, hey, man, you're a really cool person. You're really awesome, and you have money. If you're idle, uh, might be to look good for other people. Like can look out at some of you guys. It's me look very nice this morning. And maybe for some of you, you know, you do that to impress others. You spend money to impress other people through what you wear. And, and you may have noticed, you know, as I cycle through basically the same five or six dress shirts every Sunday, that that is not my idol, right? It just, it's the same. The only way I'm going to change fashion is if someone buys me a dress shirt. I get it like in a stocking for Christmas. That's not my idol. I have, believe me, other potential idols. Money also serves the idol of security. There are savers amongst us. Saving money makes you maybe feel a little more secure about your future. Such that your future isn't necessarily or even really in God's hands, but Butterfields, Scotia Banks, First Caribbeans, or some hedge fund. Right? And probably in the current job that lets you build up your future. Now, Jesus doesn't say storing up money is wrong, interestingly enough, does he? What does he say in Matthew chapter 6? Do not store up treasures for yourselves. Do not store treasures on earth for yourself. Such that that becomes the reason you work. That becomes the reason you even move somewhere. Now, there are some of you here this morning that in an honest moment, You moved here to Grand Cayman to make a little extra money, to pad your savings account, secure your future before returning home. Okay, if that's still the reason why you're here, I say Jesus says you're in trouble. You're in trouble. It's never the number one reason we'll mention to others, right? We say, oh, I moved here for the great weather, it was a good opportunity, and if I happen to save a little extra money on the side for later in my life, sure, that's great. No one ever says it's the number one reason, right? But that's because covetous and greed are the silent killers. They're the non-obvious. They're never admitted out loud because we rarely see them at first. So if this is you, 
your worry in life is that there will never be enough. So if you give an inch of your time, if you generously give an inch of your talents or your treasure, you'll never see that inch. You'll never see that hour. You'll never see that dollar again because resources get depleted. There's only so much to go around. Right? And other platitudes we say. You never get back with what you're generous now. That's what we tell ourselves. So if any of what I've painted for you here resonates with you, you're that saver, a person who thinks, if I just put a little more away, then I'll finally feel okay, not only with my life, but then I'll feel okay with being generous. I've got a compelling adventure to tell you about this morning, through which I believe God wants to use your generous response as the means by which he's going to break that idol of security in your life, that idol of financial security, that idol of if I put up more, if I save more, then I'll finally be okay. I'll finally be content. Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis 15. As we look this first day in March at Abraham's adventure. Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. When God first meets Abraham, he asks him to leave his family's land in Ur. It's a great name for a city, right? Simple. <laughs> Requires basically a little more than a moan. Ur. I'm from Ur. I love it. But, but he, gives, he gives Abraham this promise as he leaves this place he's grown up in, he's always known, the borders of which he's never left. God makes him a promise. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And I'm going to bless the families of the whole earth through you. Abraham says, okay, even though I just met you, <laughs> even though this has been my whole life, let's do this. And they go on this adventure together. Now, chapter 15, which we're going to read from, is a recapitulation of the same promise that God made to Abraham, just with a little more detail. So that's the place that we'll turn to. Genesis chapter 15, read this with me, if you would, God's word. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will end up being my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came back to Abram. This man shall not be your heir, referring to Eliezer. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, and he said, Look toward the heaven. Number the stars, if you're able to even number them. Then God said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. And God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And Abraham said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. And he brought them all these. God instructed him, cut them in half, lay each half over against each other, so like in two rows, basically. But he did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. So my moment of light comedy, right? You see Abraham trying to get the birds away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. There will be servants there. 
skip down. He basically says he's going to rescue them from this eventually. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a, and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. The pieces of the animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, and the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is God's word. So we see here in Abraham's adventure, firstly, God's promise frees us to be generous with our future. Then we're going to see, secondly, outbursts of mistrust. Do not alter God's promise. His promise stays the same. And thirdly, we're going to see how we might generously borrow against a promised future. So first, God's promise frees us to be generous with our future. Verse 1 here of chapter 15 is a great summary of God's two-tensed promise to Abram. He's basically telling Abram, I'm going to take care of you. Sorry, I am taking care of you, and I will take care of you forever. I am taking care of you, I will take care of you forever. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. I am, which is great, because he is the I am, right? Like a double play on words. I am is your shield. And he says, your reward shall be very great. God is his shield. And God is shield is represented through this giving of land. Let me explain. For a man who has been, who began trusting God by wandering across the Arabian desert to get to where he was going. The Arabian desert. Okay, you just, just imagine that in your mind. He goes throughout Palestine. He would never stop wandering his whole life, which means he was constantly subject to new weather patterns and changing ones at that. Sandstorms and basically the worst kind of rain you can imagine. Bandits, robbers, hostile people groups whom he never met and had no warning about because he just set foot on their land as a nomad. The promise of a permanent home for Abram meant safety and thus rest. But God is saying that you can gain rest in relationship to me and my promise. I will be your shield. I will protect you. I will give you rest. I am that to you. You just need to believe in my promise. God's reward for Abraham, that future reward would be a life that would never end. Abraham picks up on this, and so he objects in verse 2, right? Oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. At this point, Abraham's wife Sarah was somewhere between, we think, 60 and 80 years old. And she hadn't yet born a child. Anybody ever know a 60 to 80 year old to give birth? Raise your hand. You can share a testimony now. This was viewed, if you did not have a child by this point in your life, as an unmitigated disaster in the ancient world. Your family line represented basically eternal life. It was the way to carry on your inheritance. It was a way to be cared for in your old age. It was a way to basically set up your funeral so you can continue into eternal life. You had to have kids for that. Who else would do it but your eldest child? No one. There's no one to do it. This is a disaster. It's essentially like cutting off life. So what does Abram do? He's made plans to secure his own life through Eleazar, which means God has helped. We think this was probably then one of his servants. You might be able to relate to this. Setting up 
life when you feel like you have no other alternative. It's one thing to call ourselves Christians by name, to trust Jesus Christ for life now and forever, but to make our own Biedermarken plan, right? To squeeze out the best of the situation we find ourselves in. To make lemonade out of lemons, right? And so we, we say, well, we, I've got to do something about this. Let me make my own plan because I really, I'm not sure I can really trust God's, or at least His plan needs an add-on. God's promised plan, friends, is far greater and worth waiting on. Verses 4-5, through we read about it. Behold, the word of the Lord came to Abram. This man shall not be your heir. Your own son will be your heir. Brought him outside. Look toward heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. So shall your offspring be. And you can imagine. Maybe you've been recently to East End, or at least to Bottom Town, at night. You look up at the stars. How much more are they? More numerous? Way too many to count? And even still in those places, there's what we call light pollution or light noise. But here in the desert, in the wilderness, just stars. Brilliant. And further than the eye could see. This is what your life will be like. It will be forever. So God serves up this two-tenths promise. But secondly, we're going to see here Abraham adopts this promise. And we're also going to see that God qualifies him forever for it. So Abraham adopts this promise that God gives him by believing in it, by trusting in it. We see that here in verse 6. Abraham just believed God. And he counted it to him, God did, as righteousness. This makes Abram, in one sense, the world's first Christian. Nearly every place you read in the Old Testament, and frankly, in every culture, including our modern one, a person is righteous because of what they do. So you say, man, that person's, well, people said this in the 70s, they say, man, that, that guy's righteous, right? They meant something different by that. But when we say someone is a, a righteous person, a noble person, a man of integrity or a woman of integrity, we mean the way they live, what they do with their lives makes them righteous. Same in the Old Testament, almost exclusively. But picking up on the example of Abraham, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament reminds Christians that they are made right with God, not because of what they do, but simply because they trusted what he's done. Simply because they believe what God has done for them. That makes them right with God. You might ask, well, wait a minute, what has God done here for Abram, he does one last thing here in our chapter this morning. He qualifies Abraham. He qualifies Abraham forever to be right with God. We see this through this sacrifice he sets up, followed by this deep sleep in verses 7-21. through 21. Any relationship in which there's a sacred agreement between two parties, a contract, if you will, was sealed by what's known as a covenant. This covenant was put into effect by a ritual. The suzerain, which was the power party, that's the strong party. That's people who had the wealth, the power, the political clout. All right? And then there was a vassal, which was the weaker party. All right? They would each pass between two halves of animals, halves of animals, while saying to each other and before their gods, as they passed through these halves of animals, may the same fate come to me if I fail to keep this covenant. Right? So here, animals cut in half. One half's on this side. Right? I mean, it's gruesome. One half of the animal's on the other side. And they are split. And you walk through. 
And you said, as you walked through, may this happen to me if I don't live up to my end of this agreement, of this deal. Especially important for the weaker party, right? Because they're at the mercy of the stronger party. Something interesting happens, though, after Abraham falls into a deep sleep. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down, while it was still dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And it was on that day that Yahweh made a covenant with Abram. What's interesting here is, first of all, Abram doesn't pass between the pieces. Instead, you get this flaming, what is it, a a smoking fire pot, a flaming torch. Abram doesn't pass between the pieces. Why? Because he can't. He is going to fail to keep his end of the bargain, to be faithful to God. In fact, we'll see in the very next chapter, he stumbles. He is not righteous in the way he lives before God. Because of a disease called sin, he's unable to live a righteous life So God lives it for him. He endures the curse for him. So he anticipates that one of his offspring, Abraham's offspring, will fulfill both halves of this covenant. He'll live the righteous life that Abraham couldn't and endure the curse. And he's going to give every person, all the offspring of Abraham, rest along with life that will never end. God does what Abraham couldn't. That's why we see this flaming torch, this strange smoking fire pot. Every time you see fire in the Old Testament, what does it usually mean? Who does it represent? God, right? The pillar of fire. Right? The burning bush. My God, it's a consuming fire. So when Abraham has this vision of two different entities, and that's why I think Moses in writing this clearly makes a uh, distinction between them. Fire pot. Flaming torch. God is fulfilling both halves of the covenant. He's fulfilling the part that none of us can by living a righteous life because we all fall short, which is so glorious. That means all Abram has to do is say, I trust, God, that you are going to do this. That I cannot, that you can. And what does that do for Abram? It makes him the freest man alive. It makes him the freest man yet to live. No matter if he's a poor steward of what God gives him, no matter if he fails to love and trust God, no matter if he doesn't keep his word, no matter if he even treats his spouse poorly at times or disobeys God in the same way, times 77. Have you ever had that feeling where you mess up and you mess up and you mess up? Even still, there will always be more for Abram because God promised it. For a more positive side, no matter how much he spends on Sarah's anniversary gift, no matter how much he contemplates handing over to his nephew Lot, and saying, Lot, you just, just take this. There will always be more for Abram. No matter how generous he is with his time on a positive side or his talents or his treasure. For you and I, the Bible says a few important things in relationship to this promise to Abraham, but it's probably most shortly summarized with this. Galatians 3.29 If you are Christ's, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to his promise. Let me read that again, Galatians 3.29 If you are Christ, you've trusted Christ. You are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You get that promise. Promise of God taking care of you now, just as he looks after the lilies of the field, and the promise to take care of you forever. The riches of eternal life. There will always be more for those who are Christ's. So you can always be more generous. Now, more good news, part two here. 
Outbursts of mistrust don't alter God's freeing promise. This is very good news. We're going to see this, though, through Moses' life. I'm so glad God put it here through his word. In the very next chapter, chapter 16, Abram messes up. He gets this great, these great promises from God. God shows him in a vision, I'm going to fulfill what you can't. And right away, chapter 16, Abram goes along with his wife Sarah's plan for he and Sarah's maidservant to know each other in the biblical sense. Okay, conceive, get their child through their own plans, and Sarah feels, I'm way too old for this. Abraham says, okay, God has made me a promise, but I guess I'll do this. <laughs> you see it again, chapter 17, 17 through 18, where Abram kind of gets frustrated with the time he's waiting on God, and finally he says, God, we've waited so long. Oh, that Ishmael may live before you. That was his way of saying, now Ishmael, was the son that he had through Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. He's basically saying, can't, can't Ishmael be the guy? Can't he be the heir through which the whole world will be blessed and through which eternal life will come? In other words, he just doesn't really trust God and his promises anymore. There's a limit. There's an expiration date. We see it again. Abram is so desperate to preserve his own life prior to having children. Guess what he does? He, he calls Sarah his sister when they settle down places. When they go to a new land, Abraham has this habit. It's a bad habit. He says, oh, guys, meet my sister, Sarah, because he doesn't want to be killed. In that day and age, the law of the land was essentially, if I see something I want, I take it by force. He's got this beautiful wife. He doesn't want to die. So he says, oh, yeah, she's my sister. I don't want you to kill me. (laughs) He does that not only once, but twice. Get the gravity of how awful this sin is. He's giving his wife over to be married to another and all that that entails. God has miraculous ways, thankfully, of preserving Sarah. But you get the point. I'm so glad the Holy Spirit chose through Moses, who certainly wrote Genesis, to hand down to us, through his word, Abraham's sins and weaknesses. Not because it makes me just feel better, and you probably feel better. Because each outburst of mistrust from Abraham is towards the very promise God made to him, right? That I'm going to give you an offspring. You're going to live until that point. Your offspring's going to live, and I'm going to take care of you. And yet, Moses is like, I don't think so. I don't think so. I'm going to make my own plan. I'm going to even, to the point of giving my wife away. Even still, that doesn't alter God's faithfulness. That's why in the New Testament we read, even when we are faithless, God is faithful, for he can't disown his own self, his own character. It's beautiful. It's amazing. We we don't deserve that. Just like Abraham didn't. For us, there's going to be times we try to make our own way. We're going to hold back from doing what's right, from being generous, the generous person God has called us to be. Because we have these momentary outbursts, these lapses in trusting. So we say, well, I'm just going to take care of it. For myself, God. So we do all kinds of things. We might not be honest and not give to God. We might even hold back in terms of the law, which is also holding back from God and stealing from God. We cut corners so we can get a little bit extra for that bank account. So we can have a little bit more. But here's the best part. Through forgiveness, God always returns us to His promise. Which Hebrews 6.19 calls a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. Listen to that again, because in Hebrews 6, it's actually referring to Abraham here in the promise. 
a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. This promise, he will take care of you. He is taking care of you. He will take care of you forever through Jesus Christ, no matter what you do and no matter how much you spend. So let's take stock here. A Christian is always promised more, no matter what we do or how much we give. We remember from last week, 2 Corinthians 9.11, you will be enriched in every way for your generosity. That's a promise from God. You will be enriched in every way when you give away. It'll just come back. You'll be enriched in every way. And additionally, we read in that same chapter, people will start to will glorify God as a result. The spread of the gospel will go out. There'll be good news for so many different kinds of people. So here's the message this morning in a nutshell. If you remember one thing, remember this. A Christian is free to generously borrow against a promised future. A Christian is radically free to generously borrow against a promised future. I was taking a life skills class in high school, which was needed for me at that time. I was a a wayward child, to say the least, in so many senses of the word. But I did own some stock. Admittedly, one of the, some of the stock was just one share in the Boston Celtics, an NBA team. Yielded me nothing. But I actually owned some like, actual like, money I'd saved up and a good chunk of it in Chiquita Bananas. True story. I almost should have brought in a Chiquita Banana this morning, but they had other brands at the grocery store. Uh, I should have known that was the future of Chiquita Bananas. I would never invested in it. First place. I told my father and grandfather, let's go with Wendy's. Seems to have potential. That was like 20 years ago. Wendy's doubled in price. You can tell I'm a little bitter. It's okay. I wasn't exactly the wolf of Wall Street, okay? That's all that's what I'm trying to say. So, so we're, we're talking about finance. I actually cared about finance at this point in my life, which was kind of a strange thing for my age, I'll admit. My PE teacher taught this life skills class, Mr. Sykes, and I remember him saying, because I was so interested in finance, let me tell you from experience, he was bitter like I am right now, let me tell you from experience, never borrow against anything you can't lose. If you can't lose it, kids, don't borrow against it. Like, clearly something had happened to Mr. Sykes that week, like you know, maybe in a game of poker or something of that nature. Who knows? Never borrow against something you can't lose. Don't take out a loan or draw against using as collateral something unless you're okay with losing it. Because you can't predict the future. You don't know. It's the opposite for a Christian. This is what's so radical about generosity. You're radically free to borrow against a saved-up future in order to be generous with others. He promises he will enrich you. Look at how the untouchable promise of Abraham's future frees him to be generous. And I hope it feeds you with some ideas of how you might be generous this week and this month. So how we might generously borrow against a promised future. First of all, we see that Abraham's generous with his talents. We don't have time to kind of go through each of these in depth, but maybe you can write down the verse and look at them later. He's generous with his talents. There's instances in Genesis 14 where these four kings go against five. Okay, so like everyone's a king in their county or their village, right? So you have lots of kings in these days. So it's four against five, and the five take captive some of Abraham's kinsmen. And we read this in chapter 14, verse 14. When Abram learned that his kinsmen had been taken captive, He led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan, which was a long way away. 318 men he has trained using the talents and skills he has has to train them. He's done so, no doubt, to defend himself and his family, but here he generously risks his future to help someone else, right? 
He generously risks his own safety, his future child, his army, to be generous in helping others. It does not make sense unless God has made a promise to him. Unless he's made a promise of an untouchable future yet to come. But because God has, he can say, okay, risk it all to help others, to be generous to others. Guys, every person has talents to offer. Every Christian has gifts by the Holy Spirit. But we mostly use them to advance or preserve our own future, if we're honest. Teachers sometimes are hesitant to teach something like kids' ministry because they fear, and I understand, to give up their creativity, their relational capital with kids because they fear they won't have any more for the upcoming week. I get that. Musicians hesitate to play in praise bands They need to maximize their talent, their creativity, and their skill towards their craft right during the week. Those in finance don't try to use their knowledge to help the less fortunate budget or use their connections to help them save. Some of you have homes. You have homes like walking into a bed, bath, and beyond. But you say, even though that's your home, but you know, hospitality is for my family. I can't do the same thing on a Sunday morning even though we're in need of more help with hospitality? Or I can't do that for a community group. Like, I just won't have that energy to put into making my home a hospitable place for my family. Once we exhaust the best of our talent, we buy into the lie that we're never going to get it back. Once it's gone, it's gone. Consider, we consider God to be that hard man who says, man, God's going to say, sorry, it's used up. The same hard man that that gentleman in the parable of the good talents says, I won't give anything then. As you might remember, that ends very unfortunately for that man in the parable of the talents. There was weeping and gnashing of teeth for him. He refused to be generous, though God was generous to him. So I encourage you, borrow against your future. Use up on Sunday or in your community group what you have no idea you might have on Monday, except that God promises he'll give you more. Abraham was also generous with his time. God decided to let Abraham in on a secret. Abram, I'm thinking about destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. That, yes, that Sodom and Gomorrah. People still use today as an awful place. Chapter 18, we see that. Imagine if you had a good life and you're trying to live for God, yet next door, just a, the next city over, next couple cities over, you have Sodom and Gomorrah. You're trying to live for God. Things are good. It's like having Las Vegas and Amsterdam right next door, yet on steroids in part because those are probably legal in those two cities, right? Steroids in Amsterdam. So you have, you have this like evil, this is just spilling out wickedness, parties till 4 a.m., right? And it's sort of, you know, people are coming by your city, dropping their version of beer and whatnot on your property. And you're thinking to yourself, man, God, that's probably a good idea that you destroy them. <laughs> like, that seems right. But that's not what Abram does. He gives his time to plead with God on behalf of the two wicked cities in case there are some good people left there. Seven times he pleads on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. That doesn't make sense for Abram's future. His future would be far off, far better from a human perspective if he just said, good idea, God. (laughs) But he doesn't. He uses his time to plead for them. Every person has time to offer the body of Christ and to those who are often forgotten about. And you say, well, you know, Ryan, though my Sunday's my only sleeping day, and you don't understand, like, I really need till exactly 9.15 a.m. Like, that's, that's, my, that's my sweet spot. So I can't really come in early to help at church. Or maybe that's the neighbor who you've said hi to frequently, but they seem lonely. 
As you pass them by, you say, yeah, but I want to get inside. My favorite TV show starts at 9, or, you know, if I, if I talk now, it'll be too late, and I won't get enough sleep. Or if I stay behind at the workplace during busy season to comfort someone who's clearly struggling, you know, there, there won't be enough sleep for me. There won't be enough time to get my work done. Spend time like Abram, advocating for a lost cause or even an enemy. Intercede. Get on someone's team. Inconvenience yourself for someone who can provide no clear advantage for you. Borrow against your future when it makes no human sense to tarry because God will replenish you and be the rest you need. He will replenish you be the rest you need. Finally, we see here, Abram's generous with his treasure. He leaves his father's home, his job, his future inheritance for God. He looks over this new land with his nephew named Lot. He seems, he's, it seems that he and Lot and Abraham have a, a conflicting personalities, personality differences, so Abram suggests they go their separate way, and in doing so, he says, hey, Lot, you pick the land you want. There's arid land to one side, fertile land to the other. He says, Lot, you choose the best. And Lot chooses the best. You know what God does in that moment? Just to reaffirm his promise, he says, Abram, basically, he says, that was very generous of you. Look to the east, the west, the north, the south. This is all going to be yours one day. But he was generous first. God was generous to him. He gives one-tenth of his treasure to a priest named Melchizedek. Finally, he gives his only and promised son to God. So God provides his lamb at the last minute, reminding us that he'll one day give his only son, the lamb of God, for us all. Every person here has money. Who here drove or drove with someone to church today? Raise your hand. You're automatically in the top 5% of the world's wealthiest people. Congratulations. All right? You say, well, but Ryan, but I didn't get my 10% raise that I was expecting at the end of last year, so I really can't give my 10% to God. Or you say, well, you know, but they might downsize at work. I have someone in the same industry who just got canned, and so I fear that I might lose my job. Too often we rationalize, friends, that generosity is for some later time. That once I get my bank account high enough and I save enough, then I can be generous. But let me tell you a truth about life, which you probably know from experience, many of you do. The habits you build today are the habits you're going to drag into tomorrow. You're not just going to one day start being generous at age 50, 60, 70, 80. That doesn't happen. That's a problem. But there's a good side of that too. You can start that habit today and you can drag it through your entire life as you watch God richly provide for you when you're generous. Guys, committing yourself to a generous act of giving time, treasure, talent won't save you. But stepping maybe into that place as a response of God's generosity to you, in response to his generous promise in Christ Jesus that he is your rest and will take care of you forever, might be God's way of liberating you from a destructive idol of security. The idol of finding your security and how much you save. Abraham showed that he trusted God by leaving behind his future for a better future with God and giving his greater treasure at the end of his adventure. And so he was free. My question is, are you? Let's pray. Father, many of us here admire the generous lives of others. We want to emulate people like Abraham and others we know in our own lives, but we're held back wondering, if I'm generous now, will I have enough for later? And the answer is always yes for those who trust Christ Jesus. We can rest in his provision now and know that there will always be more for us ahead. So help us go ahead 
and borrow against our future as an act of trust in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.